Well, thank you for joining me today on Financially Speaking. My name is Mitch Slater. I'm a Senior Vice President and Financial Advisor with UBS Wealth Management in Westfield, New Jersey. Where, along with my partners, Ann and Crystal, we do our best to bring you advice beyond investing and address our clients' most challenging financial needs. It's my sincere hope that each and every episode of this podcast will educate you on personal finance and real-life business issues of the day. So let's jump right in. So I don't usually get to quote Olympic swimmers, but I wanted to start the show quoting the GOAT of the gold medals, Michael Phelps, who now runs the Michael Phelps Foundation. He wrote recently, the lessons outlined in the seven habits of highly effective people are an important guide to success. This book is one of the top selling books of all time for a reason. The success I've had in swimming and in life is credited to a similar proactive goal setting approach dream, plan, and reach. And it's really hard to believe, but it's been 30 years since the late Stephen Covey wrote this book, which now is sold somewhere in the neighborhood of over 50 million copies and translated into just about every language. I think if we knew Martian, it would be translated to Martian at this point. Ironically, and I heard my guests say this recently, that it would probably still be on the bestseller list if they would let a book stay on that long. (laughs) So my guest today is Scott Jeffrey Miller. He's the executive vice president of Franklin Covey and host of the very popular On Leadership with Scott Miller webcast, podcast, newsletter that's heard and read by over 6 million business leaders globally. Scott has also authored two bestsellers himself, Management Mess to Leadership Success and 30 Challenges to Become the Leader You Will Follow which of course is the sequel to 50 Ways to Leave Your Lover. Okay, those are the jokes. That's, <laughs> that's about it for today. But today we're going to talk about what one could refer to after 30 years, the Old Testament, the classic book that this year celebrates its 30th anniversary with an updated edition just released with fresh insights by Sean Covey, who, like his dad, has written his share of bestsellers himself. Welcome to the show, Scott. Mitch, thank you for the invite and the platform. Oh, uh, my pleasure, my pleasure. And as I said, I really I enjoy your work and have taken away a lot from your interviews. So congratulations really on these wonderful shows, which of course we're going to link to and we'll talk about a little bit later in the show. But before we dig into the updated version of Seb and Habits, I'd like to hear more about how you're doing as we continue to struggle as a nation with this global pandemic. Well, thanks for asking. You know, we're fortunate to live in Utah, where the incidence has been lower than perhaps some of the more dense cities in the U.S. We're a fairly compliant state, right? Primarily Latter-day Saints out here. I'm not a member of that faith, but we have a lot of great people in the state, a lot of mask wearing. My wife and I uh, are fortunate to live downtown with our three sons in a fairly large home. So we've had the benefit of being outside a lot. And so we're just doing our share, wearing masks everywhere we go, staying home, honestly, now for what is now the fifth month and doing our best to wait it out. So thank you for asking. Well, that's great. Well, recently, JetBlue chairman Joel Peterson, who I think has spoken with you as well, joined me for the second time on my show, not to just talk about JetBlue and the obvious, of course, but about resilience during the time of COVID. So what are, what are some of your biggest takeaways or lessons that we in the business world can walk away from? Well, I think if for those of you who are leaders, I think it's showing an unprecedented level of empathy for 
the members of your team, right? Being relatable, recognizing that you too are struggling, making it safe for people to share their own fears and concerns. I offer advice a lot to leaders that are now trying to lead virtually to say, make sure that your mindset is checking in rather than checking on because people know when they're being checked on and they feel when they're being checked in with. So I think it's great to be vulnerable. I think it's helpful to be authentic around your own fears and concerns and what you're struggling with and how you're trying to find the new normal at home with the kids and working spouses and never ending work and no vacations. It's uh, everybody's in the same boat. Let me rephrase that. Everyone's in the same storm. Right. We might be in different boats. The boat might be the Titanic. That's right, right, right. Some people might be in different boats, but everyone's in the same storm. And the more you can be relatable to those around you, the more I think people will trust and appreciate that checking in mentality. Hmm. Very true. And hopefully with a vaccine in our arm going into, let's say, the reconstruction period that awaits us, hopefully by early next year, in thinking of the seven habits, and we'll get into it you know, in a little bit more depth, but as far as the challenges and uncertainty in this generation that we're dealing with right now, what do you think of, of those habits? Is there one that just sticks out to you? I know you talked about checking in, but is, is there one that like, wow, if you've got that one nailed, this is really, this is really a, not a good time for you, but you're prepared for it. Yeah, I I would definitely say habit one, right? Habit one is be proactive. And I think a lot of people think when they hear the word be proactive, they think of taking initiative or taking charge. And what Dr. Covey really meant was when you are proactive, you take responsibility for the outcomes of your life. Proactive people carry their own weather, metaphorically, right? They don't give up their mindset to someone or something else. They don't ping pong off of other people's moods, circumstances, emotions. Proactive people recognize that in the midst between stimulus and your response, that you have the freedom to choose how you want to show up, what you want to say. Dr. Covey really studied Viktor Frankl, his work on man's search for meaning. And so people that are proactive, that exercise habit one, really governed their emotions. They're very calibrated. They're thoughtful around how they want to show up in every conversation, in every meeting, in every discussion, in every crisis. And they don't give up, like I mentioned previously, their emotional weather over to other people. They're much more deliberate. And therefore, I think they're more consistent, more thoughtful, and probably more respected in a lot of ways. I think that's very true. And, and uh, it's so interesting you said that because that is the, for me, for many years, been the one that I've related to personally the most. My struggle has always been the other end of that, which is stress, because I, I do sometimes take things personally and, and happen to be fairly emotional. So it's trying to separate the two. And it's so true. I have a wonderful memory of, of hearing Dr. Covey speak really just a couple of years after the book was out for an event that my then firm, Merrill Lynch, was doing here in New Jersey. And I remember walking away with my autographed copy of the book, which I have right in front of me, thinking this was not just a business book. And at that point, I was really only a year or two years in in a new industry. I had worked in media. So for me, you know, they're throwing all these books at me. Great, you know, great books, Peter Lynch and Buffett and 
you know, all, all these typical random walk down Wall Street and stuff like that. But nobody talked to me about leadership and, and some of these habits. And I always thought about this book, as I said, not just as a business book, but to quote James Taylor, in many ways, kind of the secret of life. Do you agree with that? Well, I certainly think what Dr. Covey did was to uncover principles that govern everybody's effectiveness or ineffectiveness in every area of our life, right? Dr. Covey didn't invent these habits. He named them. He numbered them. He sequenced them. But what he really did was organize for us timeless principles that are universal, self-evident, cross every culture, generation, religion. And they're really remarkable habits. You know, he, he named this book, Mitch, The Seven Habits of Highly Effective People. It's often misquoted in the media as being the seven habits of highly efficient people. But he was very deliberate around, no, 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 there is a difference between being efficient and being effective. There's a time to be efficient, text, email, putting the tools away in the garage, mowing your lawn, maybe some social media posts. And then there's a time to be effective. And that a lot of people confuse an efficiency mindset with an effectiveness mindset. When I say a lot of people, I mean me. One of my biggest contributions professionally has been my productivity, my efficiency, my ability to get things done fast. And it's when I move that efficiency mindset over into my relationships where it gets me in trouble, right? You can't be efficient with people. You have to be slow down. You have to be effective with people. Dr. Covey said, with people, fast is slow and slow is fast. And so I think when you really are thoughtful around the genius of his work, you realize he was very subtle in how he named things. He numbered habit one for a reason. Habit four was habit four for a reason. It wasn't just a cobbled together book. It took him a decade. And it's why I think it's now sold 40 million copies in 50 plus languages. It's timeless. Mm, absolutely. So everybody has a first story. I had a guest on a few months ago, a guy named Flip Flippins, who has written a few books. One of his books was talking about your first story, which is the one that you're born with. And I would love to hear yours and maybe how your childhood and your young adulthood led you to Dr. Covey. Like, what, what did you learn from working from Disney, for example, that translated to Covey? But, but where, where did you grow up? Where are you from? Yeah, so I was raised in Orlando, Florida, actually a suburb called Winter Park. Oh, explains the Disney. Okay. That's right. Yeah, I was born and raised there in Central Florida. And I was raised, you know, an upper middle class family. My father worked at uh, Lockheed Martin. My mother was a stay at home mom. And I'll tell you, the biggest lesson I learned in life was that, you know, our parents inculturate in us belief systems that are deeply ingrained throughout our lives. You know, I was raised to believe that in the 70s, police officers, doctors, and Catholic priests always told the truth and were always right. And now that's incredulous now. But back in the 70s and, you know, middle class, that was fairly common, right? And, you know, no way are doctors, police officers, and Catholic priests, of which I'm a member in good standing of that faith community, had a wonderful journey. I was raised to believe a lot of things that are crazy now. I think what I took away from that and now have learned more from Dr. Covey is the more we embrace and understand that a lot of our belief systems, our mindsets, our paradigms are inaccurate, not true, out, out wrong about people, cultures, races, religions, ourselves, our contributions, our skills. I, I have been the beneficiary 
of Dr. Covey's profound wisdom around, you know, this idea of a paradigm shift and constantly reassessing, am I seeing this right? Am I seeing this person right? Is my experience helpful or hurtful in this? And so I, I would say that my biggest learning, my biggest story, earliest story is really now challenging my paradigm about everything, including what my role should be. What are my skills? What is my contribution? What's it like to work for me? What's it like to be married to me? What's it like to be in a meeting with me? And I'm constantly trying to raise my own self-awareness about what it's like to be in the opposite end of a podcast with me and challenge my paradigm about that continually. Fascinating. Which character were you at Disney? No, I'm joking. I'm just, what, what, yeah. what did you do at Disney? Yeah, you know, I had a very fortunate run. So back in 1992, the Disney Development Company, which is the real estate arm of the Walt Disney Company, decided to, to bring Walt Disney's original dream of Epcot, which as you know, is the theme park experimental prototype community of tomorrow. They decided to bring that to life in a town called Celebration. And so they took, you know, tens of thousands of acreage of cow pasture and they turned it into this unbelievably thriving town with thousands of homes and hospitals, restaurants, townhomes, apartments, a school, college. And I was one of the original 40 people that helped to turn that cow pasture into what is now a controversial but extremely successful living, breathing, thriving community in Florida. It's so interesting. One of my uh, memories, I was talking with my mom, who's 93, and she's very with it. And she's, she's, you could listen to her episode. It's, it's incredible life. But, but one of the things that so fascinated me, you just mentioned, is that when I was 12 years old, it was 1972. And I was given a choice of a dog or a trip to this magical new Epcot that was opening. And I, of course, took the trip and absolutely was just blown away by by what I, I saw then and then over the years, what I continued to see and how interesting that you were part of the early days in, in building that community. Uh, and it really was built up just dramatically. And uh, I'm sure that was really an interesting experience. Um, how did you pivot over to the world of Covey? Well, Disney fired me. So the story is, you know, I often say it more gently, they invited me to leave, but I was young. I had a great ride, four years doing research for different initiatives in the community. And I was just a bit of a train wreck, right? Like a lot of 25-year-olds or 26-year-olds. I mean, I was, you know, a little too smart for myself and a little too arrogant. And, and so Disney invited me to leave. And interestingly enough, it was the Franklin Covey Company that had been doing some work in the school in celebration as they were developing the curriculum. And of course, Disney was a big adopter of the seven habits of highly effective people. I had been trained in that content as an employee at Disney. I was too young to appreciate it. But interestingly enough, since you asked the question, I had been on a business trip out to Utah once for Disney. We had a consultant out here. And you can imagine, you know, a young Catholic boy from Orlando visiting Utah in the 90s, right? It was like the opposite. You know, there was four seasons. There was no humidity. There were no Catholics. There was no neon. <laughs> there were no billboards. I mean, it was like a paradise. So I picked up and was recruited by the company. I've been here 25 years. I've lived in London, lived in Chicago, lived all over the world for the company. And I've now settled here 
where it's our headquarters. We're raising our three sons here, my wife and I. And uh, it was kind of serendipitous that I was able to move out here. And I've had the amazing opportunity to have nine separate careers inside of one company. It's a rare thing, but I've been privileged to have very different career opportunities inside of the Franklin Covey Company. I think it's great. I've always loved the concept of being with with an amazing company and doing different roles. And even though I've been a financial advisor throughout my career, I've held many roles at the same time with Merrill Lynch and in the last 10 years, UBS, that were involved in things that I was passionate about, which was mentoring and training, using things like Covey especially. And it, it's, it's, a, it's a wonderful feeling to to do a lot of different roles. And you really only get one shot at the, this this world and, and this go around. So why not do as much as you can? So I did listen to uh, your interview that you did with Sean recently. And, and he clearly was not on board to tinker with his dad's masterpiece, which really didn't surprise me. I, I, I could understand that. I mean, I, I think that when when you are the son of a legend in any world, it has to be quite a challenge and in very, very rare cases, and Sean's one of them, well, the son actually, and there are obviously a number of siblings, really stay in that world and, and be so successful. And I'm, I'm so glad he did. And apparently you were a big part of kind of gently pushing him in that direction to, to say, but he took the best of his own seven habits for teenagers, which I've given as bar mitzvah presents and graduation presents over the year, because I, I think it's brilliant. And it's added a whole new dimension to the story. So ultimately, what convinced him to do it and maybe give our audience a little tease of some of the, the new material that's in the book? Well, what convinced him was me. <laughs> so, uh, and I don't ever say that, but I'll be honest. So, I served as the chief marketing officer for Franklin Covey for eight years. As you know, Dr. Covey passed away, I think, just shy of nine years ago tomorrow. You know, Dr. Covey's legacy is, you know, incalculable. But I think there's a whole generation of people that missed the seven habits because Dr. Covey passed nine years ago. He'd been out of the spotlight for about five years due to just some health issues. So there were a lot of people that had come out of, you know, high school, college, entered the workforce that had never either read the book or been through the program or heard a webcast or saw him speak. I mean, Dr. Covey spoke to, you know, millions of people a year. So I sat down with Sean and the CEO. Bob Whitman and said, I think there is a generation of people that are entering the workforce that, you know, 10 years from now will be our managers and leaders or less. And they need this content as much as anybody. You know, we're a public company. We are a professional services company. We train and teach our content around the world. But I thought there was a missing nearly generation there. I told Sean, I don't think you should change a single word of your dad's book. But what I do think is an opportunity for you to shepherd your father's legacy and his brand by adding new insights. And it had never been done before, right? Peter Drucker, gosh, you know, you look at all the people, Ken Blanchard, you look at, you know, um, Hiram Smith, you look at Dale Carnegie, no one had done this before. So Sean and I, you know, met extensively over the course of about a year. We knew it was coming up on the 30th anniversary, and we came to terms that what he would do, which is what he did, which is try to share about a thousand words as an insight on top of each of the seven habits. So I think it was, the book is organized into about maybe nine sections, kind of foundational principles, each of the seven habits, and then kind of a summation. 
So Sean sat down and from his own expertise, from being one of the best-selling leadership authors in history, from the seven habits of highly effective teens, he's written books about uh, executing strategy. You know, in of himself, he has sold over 10 million books. He shared what he thought his dad meant by applying Habit 2 in 2020, right? How, how are the principles? Which is so uniquely different. Than thirty years ago, I think that's true. I think it's. I think some things are the same, and some things are very different. So Sean was very vulnerable. You know, I don't know if you know, but Sean has many children. He lost one of his daughters to depression about five years ago. He shares quite vulnerably in the book some of the stories from that. He talks about his own childhood being raised by his dad and his mom. He shares examples from school principals from not-for-profit executive directors, from heads of state, from CEOs, from just simple people like you and I that are you know, working in organizations that are entrepreneurs. And so he shares insights and new applications at the back of each of the seven habits. We left intact every word Dr. Covey wrote. We left intact the beautiful forward written by Jim Collins, author of Good to Great. And I think that became a bit of a blockbuster. Can you believe, Mitch, the book sold 20,000 copies last week? Oh, of course I can. The week before that, it sold 18,000 copies. So we didn't do this. We did not do this to make money, right? The company's in good standing. We're thriving in some ways through COVID. Obviously, we'd love to have more clients. We wanted more people to benefit from the habits. So mission accomplished. Great job, Sean. No, absolutely. And and for those that may have never read the book, and again, they're, they're always new audiences. Personally, and it's interesting, I, I served two terms on the, our local board of education and financial literacy is something that's extremely important to me. And I was part of getting that mandated in all schools in New Jersey before people graduate. But I would add to that list that a book like this is something that should be mandatory reading. And again, Yes, everyone should read To Kill a Mockingbird. Yes, read Kerouac, Shakespeare. I mean, I can't say enough, and I'm an avid, an avid reader. But on the other hand, there's the real world. And books like this, Dale Carnegie, for example, was the book for me growing up. All right. So books like that are so impactful and can make such a difference. And I not necessarily sure. Both my kids read it cover to cover, but I made an effort. And I, and I, you know, I think it's important. And I just wanted to kind of break down the habits in whatever form you feel makes the most sense so people can relate to. We're not obviously going to sit here and talk, you know, for, you know, 24 hours because we could about every habit. You covered proactive, but why don't we go with number two, begin with the end in mind. I could even do each of them fairly quickly. Habit two, habit two is begin with the end in mind, right? This is really about understanding where you're headed. What's the why behind the what? What 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 is your big goal, reputation, legacy? It's where Dr. Covey talks about the the value of having a personal mission statement, identifying the roles in your life, connecting to your own values. I love the concept he shares around kind of measure twice and cut once. Be really thoughtful around. What is your end in mind with this project, with this initiative, with this company, with this family, with my life? So that's where he talks really around understanding what is your contribution. Habit three is put first things first, because you can't put first things first if you haven't identified what is your end in mind. So this really is kind of the habit around personal time management, 
understanding the difference between be urgent and important, the time matrix, the four quadrants that was popularized by Dr. Covey, but I think invented by, I think, Eisenhower, if I'm not mistaken. And so this was really around understanding what are your, quote, big rocks versus your, you know, small rocks. It was an organizational system, weekly planning and daily planning. And then, of course, habit four is think win-win. This isn't a do habit, not an act habit. It's a think habit. It's a mindset. It's, right, it's do you enter all of your interactions, all of your relationships, all of your meetings, all of your negotiations with a win-win mindset as opposed to win-lose or lose-win or we both lose? Dr. Covey said, you know, it's okay to have no deal. If you can't accomplish win-win, then perhaps no deal is a third alternative. But what he wanted people not to do was to be a victim or a martyr and have a lose-win mentality or to have a dominating personality or strategy that was, well, I win at your expense, or we both negotiate ourselves down to where we both lose. That was the big thought around these interactions around think win-win. Habit five is seek first to understand, then to be understood. This is the listening habit. This is the concept that most of us listen with the intent to respond, not with the intent to understand. So he was very deliberate around what is pretend listening? What is empathic listening? How do we ask questions all the time that are for good or bad benefit? It's a profound habit, the one that he struggled with the most. I want to stop you before you get to six. Because sure. five, five, I think, is one of the strongest examples of the change in the world for that the internet brought. It has a lot to do with communication. I mean, the world I grew up with, even even the world I grew up with at Merrill Lynch, you know, would take me five minutes to just get, you know call my client and give him a quote for IBM or whatever I was doing. Versus where we are today, you and I, you sitting in Utah, me here in New Jersey, staring at this thing that didn't exist. It's, it, it did, but in a very different way 30 years ago. And then, honestly, while I'm sitting here, I could be, you know telling a million people about our conversation with a couple of little, you know, words typed out. I mean, it's just that. And I think I wanted to talk about email because email to me has always been one of the most challenging parts of my job. And I think my kids have learned that too, because so different what people think versus what you necessarily mean when you're writing an email. So did Sean take that on at all when, when he commented on number five? You know, I think Dr. Covey, when he taught this whole empathic listening concept, did an extraordinary job. Sean gave some examples, I think, as a parent on how you know to be a more thoughtful listener in terms of not interrupting, being more patient, moving off your own experience, your own agenda, your own timeline. But Dr. Covey's work was masterful because I think he, you know, this idea that when you realize that as we listen, we do so with the intent to respond and not to un not to understand, it really changes our motivation, right? We 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 really begin to think differently around how we move off of our own agendas and try to better appreciate the role, the challenge the situation somebody else is in and then recognize, is it helpful to bring our experience to this or not? Is it just that our job is to validate? Because you can listen empathically without agreeing with someone. You can validate someone 
without agreeing with them. There is an art to being an effective listener. Sean talked in the book about how, you know, listening is quite selfless. It's speaking that's quite selfish. And in this time of unprecedented, you know, bombarding of information and vitriol and challenge, that if you empathically, genuinely choose to understand someone else's point of view, that does not require agreement, when you can faithfully say back to them, to their satisfaction, what it is they said to you, then you have earned the right to then share your point, your thought, your contribution. It really requires a mature person to implement this habit in all their relationships. Oh, it's so true. So true. Okay, move on. Habit six, synergize. You know, it's just the concept of not just tolerating, but celebrating differences and diversity. Dr. Covey was a bit ahead of his time on this. It was as a leader, as an effective person, embracing different points of view, calling together richer voices, perspectives at the table. He was all about one plus one equals three and really leveraging the benefit of people's different skills, experiences. This is a habit that I think is most relevant now inside organizations with diversity inclusion initiatives, Black Lives Matter, and really understanding the power of experience, especially inside organizations. Habit seven was sharpen the saw. This was around constantly rejuvenating yourself mentally, emotionally, spiritually, physically, and taking the time to invest in yourself so that you're not burnt out. Again, I think he was a little bit you know, ahead of his time because right now, especially in COVID-19, I mean, when is the last day, Mitch, you had a full day off from your job? I honestly can't remember there you at this go. point. Yeah. For me, I don't think it was this calendar. I don't even know what day it is. So that, yeah, that's, that's right. a whole other issue. Yeah. I, th- I think it's Wednesday. I think it's Wednesday. But to <laughs> me as well, too, I have not taken a vacation day or a paid day off in 2020 because, you know, the economy was booming in January, February, right? I was out speaking every day. I was keynoting around the world, booking more speeches. All of a sudden, COVID hit. And now everyone's working from home and everybody is so frightened about losing their job or wanting to add value or seen as being invaluable that none of us are now taking time off. I need to take two weeks off, damn it. I've never worked harder in my life. I need to check out and take two weeks off away from this wonderful company and go invest in myself, go sharpen my saw. Now more than ever. Do we need to make sure that we're not building lives that are centered around our professional identities, that are centered around our careers? We've got to make sure that now that we're all working from home, there are clear boundaries that we set between our professional lives and our real lives. So true. And there, there's a story, I don't know if this was in the book or in, in one of the reviews or something that I read recently. As most of us, I guess a week ago, Friday night, sat down to watch the beautiful Hamilton, which I was fortunate enough to see on Broadway. But Lin-Manuel Miranda actually is really habit number seven. Fascinating. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, when you think about it, because he he really needed to get away. He had just you know been working on this show, The Heights, for, for years and years and years. And he decided, you know, I, I got to take this vacation in Mexico and he really didn't want to. And 
and uh, somebody had just said to him, you know, he was looking for a book to read, and he's a, he's a history guy, and and Hamilton, Ron Chernow's book, it was, uh, I don't know, top five on the bestseller list. So during this time that he was sharpening the saw, during this time when he was really kicking back and relaxing, as we all do, for some of us it's reading, he reads this book. And as he's reading this book, he just said, it's just no accident that the best idea I've ever had in my life, maybe the best one I'll ever have in my life, came to me on this vacation. From the seed of an idea, Hamilton obviously went on to shatter every record, and it all came from a family vacation. And he points out that we still had that family vacation. Every aspect of that vacation was what a vacation should be. The idea for what's obviously turned out to be his piece de resistance, at least so far, came while he was kind of sharpening the saw. And I, I love the the analogy there, you know, especially in the song, you know, I'm I'm not going to give up my shot, and and how he really got the shot while practicing number seven of the habits. And it's just I I just you know love the the coordination about that, and it's really cool. So let's move on and talk a little bit about you, Scott, because you yourself have done some really incredible things we talked about a little bit earlier. So you've had a lot of roles at Franklin Covey, and in many ways, you've really become the face of the organization with all the podcasts and webcasts and books. But specifically, did you say you're in business development right now? Is that kind of... Well, so I spent the first decade in sales and sales leadership, and then I was the chief marketing officer for eight years. And about two years away, Mitch, I actually stepped away from that role. And now I, I serve as the executive vice president of thought leadership. I report to the CEO, but in this job, my role is to mainly curate Franklin Covey's thought leadership, the books that we author, the podcasts that we're on, the keynote speeches that we deliver, and really help to build the, the brand of the company through thought leadership, which in essence is the new public relations. So I am writing several books each year. The first two I did extremely well. I'm, I'm humbled and honored about. I have two more in the pipeline. Tell us about those first two books just briefly. So the first book I wrote is called Management Mess to Leadership Success. 30 challenges to become the leader you would follow. So I took 30 challenges that we've curated across all of our client engagements over four decades. And I wrote a story about how basically I'd messed them all up as a leader inside a leadership company, a very vulnerable, raw, kind of hysterical view on my own leadership journey. It, it, it debuted at number one on Amazon for six weeks solid came out a year ago and was still number one in the Kindle format yesterday in its category. So I'm delighted at how well Management Mess to Leadership Success has done. The second book that I co-authored was called Everyone Deserves a Great Manager, The Six Critical Practices for Leading a Team. This book debuted at number three on the Wall Street Journal list. It's basically a companion guide to one of our one-day leadership work sessions called The Six Critical Practices for Leading a Team. As a result of the success of those two, I'm now writing about seven books in the Mess to Success series. So think chicken soup for the soul. The first one was Management Mess to Leadership Success. The second one out in 2021 will be Marketing Mess to Brand Success from a Chief Marketing Officer. The third one is Job Mess to Career Success. And then I have Communication Mess to Influence Success. Ooh, 
I'm excited about that one. That is really interests me. Ooh. Thank you. And then I'm writing with my oldest son, Parenting Mess, to launch success. So there'll be six or seven more of those in the series. And then I'm, I'm, I've just finished a book for HarperCollins based on the podcast that I host called Master Mentors. 40 transformative insights from our greatest minds. So from my first 125 podcast interviews for Franklin Covey, I picked kind of my top favorite 40, and I share one insight from each of these 40 people. People like Daniel Pink, Seth Godin, General McChrystal, Dave Hollis, Ryan Holiday, Stephen M. R. Covey, people like that. And I share about 1,000 words per person on an insight that I learned from them. And then I share a story around how I saw it come alive, either in my own life or somebody else's life. That book will be out in early 2021 from HarperCollins. And we will certainly have you back on this podcast to talk about oh, that because I love, I love stories like that. I have Guy Raz on in a few weeks, and oh my goodness, I'm humble. I'm humble. He's a, he's a, he's a hero for for I think all of us, and and obviously the name of his book is going to be How I Built This. And I can't wait because for him to be able to encapsulate the stories, and I've you know been fortunate to have had some some great CEOs, and Joel Peterson was one that I just just loved, and I have the uh, Bruce Zuckerman actually last week who started Soul Cycle and Flywheel. I mean, and you you start listening to to these stories, and you can take the best of each of it and put it out like you're going to do in a book. That's that's. That's a home run, and I, I I think that's that's really really cool. And Mitch, thank you. In fact, Joel Peterson is one of the forty master mentors. Well, you know, if I was doing the best of Mitch, um, which eventually I guess I'll, I'll do. I just I'm, I'm I love taping at least a show a week. Whether UBS gets them out every week is a little different. That's not always up to me. But Joel Peterson, and the reason I immediately called him when COVID happened to come back on the show is that there was just so many lessons from the uh, 45 minutes to an hour we spent in the studio in New York last fall. And I also, a good friend of mine's son had taken his class at Stanford, and I just knew that he had the right message. And and this was very early on through through uh, COVID. This was uh God, only a couple of weeks in, absolutely has such a great message there. And another guy that I think we both know, I kind of borrow, some say steal, but I, I, I love kind of ending my shows taking a little page out of Tim Ferriss because I just think this is such a great question. And he did it in such a fantastic way in Tribe of Mentors. But you may never have been asked it before, and maybe you have, but I'm going to throw it out there. So you are granted a giant billboard, Scott, and you can put any message you want for the world to see. I'd love to hear what it would be and why. Oh, I think it would be something close to um, stand up for those who can't stand up for themselves. As I have taught around the world in China and India and the Middle East and even areas in the U.S., I am shocked and sickened by the oppression of, of, of people who are who are powerless. So I don't mean this to get political. I would, I would be something like, you know, stand up for those who can't stand up for themselves. I think we have an enormous responsibility. People that are thriving under a democratic government, it's a tough time in America, but to whom much is given, much is expected. So it would be something around speak for the voiceless. No, that's beautiful. And I think that is a message that is, at least in my lifetime of 
of 59 years um, in my 60th year right now, never been needed more. And I'm glad to hear you say that because I'm, I'm right on that page. Thank you so much for, for taking the time. And of course, everyone, please, even if you have the original, go out and get the 30th anniversary edition because what Sean has added in the book is, is really, really special and very, very personal. Obviously, the book's called Seven Habits of Highly Effective People, and you'll see the updated stuff from Sean Covey. Please check out Scott's books, podcasts, we're going to link to it. What's kind of the best place for folks to, you know, go right to, 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 to see some of your best work? Yeah, probably LinkedIn. Thank you for asking. I think you can follow me on LinkedIn, Twitter, Instagram, Facebook. You also can visit franklincovey.com and subscribe to our podcast on Leadership with Scott Miller. It is now the world's largest distributed and subscribed to leadership podcast in the world. And you also can just, you know, Google me as well. And I'm honored to have anybody connect to me on LinkedIn. Great, great. And I, I've been with LinkedIn from day one and I've done a number of shows related to LinkedIn. I have a lot of clients over the years. And that to me is one of the great success stories that really has been positive about social media uh, in the last 25 years. And before I go, there might be people that don't really know exactly what you guys do at Franklin Covey. I mean, obviously, you've got the books, you're doing the podcasts and so many things. And I was a day planner guy. So, I mean, I go, I go, <laughs> I go way back. But, you know, if you had to sort of concisely say what you do there and, and who your target audience is. Right. So we're a 40-year-old company based here in Salt Lake City. We are, I think, by most measures, the world's most preeminent leadership development firm. We're, we're a subscription-based company. So we have a, a library of professional development solutions that organizations implement, oftentimes enterprise-wide in companies, whether it be executing strategy, building a high-trust culture, developing leadership competencies, or just some simple things like becoming a better writer, becoming a better manager. So we have a collection of about 40 different leadership solutions that can be taught live, live online, blended learning, self-paced. And we're one of the world's largest intellectual property companies now as it relates to helping organizations achieve their top priorities. So thank you for letting me have the plug. No, absolutely. And, and it reminded me of one other thing I did want to ask you. So as and we, you and I talked a little before this about working from home, so in this work from home environment, and especially I think this is going to lead to a much larger percentage of companies having people work from home. What are you guys thinking about at Franklin Covey? Because it's such a, it's really a sea change. And I mean, we're seeing it just in the New York area in real estate in my little bedroom community, which is on a train line to New York. People are really flocking to get out of the cities. And I heard this from a few other guests that are involved in real estate. And, and, and I think companies are starting to realize, you know, I might not need to pay $300,000 a month in rent in Hudson Yards or wherever they are in New York City. Are you guys looking at that at all? I mean, are starting to formulate what, what, what other companies are thinking? And I don't know, any predictions for once we, like I said, we get the vaccine and we, listen, this decade is going to be about change without a doubt. And it started that way. But just any general thoughts there? Well, I want to predict the demise of the real estate industry <laughs> on your podcast. You're okay. absolutely right, Mitch. I mean, everything has changed. Everything will continue to change. I think the new normal, to quote you, will be change. I think people will be fleeing cities 
and being valued as virtual contributors. I think the, the new norm will be people's flexibility to some extent to be able to work how and where they need to. I think the fears that companies had about not being able to manage the productivity of people in a virtual environment are being eviscerated. I think we've proven that people can work just as, in some cases, more effectively from home. I don't think people want to work remotely 100% of the time. I, I miss going to work. I miss going to lunch with my colleagues. I, was, I miss hugging people. I miss shaking hands. Yeah, I miss, social interaction. Totally, of all of that. So they're, they're, it, it will settle out to some new healthy normal sometime probably in 2022. You know, who knows when the vaccine is coming. I heard, you know, I hear some people that are friends of mine that are physicians that say, you know, February, March, very likely. I hear others say, well, there's no vaccine for AIDS and it's been 35, 40 years. So who knows, right? We don't know. I think the good side in all of this is that everybody's priorities are being shifted. Everybody's focus is on relationships, on building trust, on how do we create environments where people can thrive in the midst of chaos. I think the downside is going to be life balance, is how do you set parameters around your day life and your work life? And now that we're at home, it is our office, it is our lives that we're losing some of our boundaries there. I have great confidence that we're going to rebound. I think it's going to get worse before it gets better. And I think you're right. I think people are generally going to value their families and their physical spaces more. I'm fortunate to be here in Utah where I think, you know, maybe there's 3 million people. It's fairly spread out and we're seeing real estate thrive here. People coming from California right now. So there's no question there's going to be a flight. Well, you have an In-N-Out burger. So we do have at least one now. That's exactly. So come on out. <laughs> and um, and then leave. <laughs> well, yeah, I, well, I look forward to getting back to Park City when I can. So uh, when you come out, I'll host you. Well, I am certain that by the time I get out there, that'll be possible. And 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 I look forward to really meeting you in person. Thank, thank you, you so much. And and we're excited about all the books. I want to thank everybody over at Resonate Recording, my production folks in beautiful downtown Louisville, Kentucky, who do all of the great work and get these shows out so quickly. And as I say on every show, when it comes to saving for your financial future, pay yourself first. Have a great week. <laughs>